From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Well, how do, how do. Welcome to the broadcast. Hope you'll stay with us for the duration. And uh, once again, welcome new affiliate WESB News Radio 1490, Bradford, Pennsylvania. News Radio 1490. Good to have you aboard. That is, uh, for those keeping score, affiliate number 26 in the Conspiracy Show family. All right. Keep them coming. Keep them coming. Great job to Chris Whitting and all the gang down in uh, Chicago at uh, Syndication Networks. All right. Uh, I want to draw your attention to the website where I've uh, posted some interesting uh, stories. I think I mentioned last week, this one is still up there if you didn't get a chance to read it. Your D-Link router may have a back door. So, again, Tim, I defer to you since I'm such a a techno-peasant. When we're talking about a D-Link router, that would be for your wireless Internet in your home, right? Well, apparently there is a back door built into that. What doesn't have a back door these days? My website was just hacked a couple of days ago just as uh, I was on the phone with uh, or on the email with uh, Victor Vigiani and we were putting tonight's show together and next week's show together. And uh, just when I was about to post some very important information on the website, it was hijacked, which has happened only uh, twice, I would say, in the last uh, seven, eight, nine years. And uh, I uh, contacted my web host and he said, you've got to update your Joomla. I'm not speaking Swahili. Your Joomla <laughs> is a uh, uh, is a um, a website design program, I guess. Anyway, I have a very old. Uh, maybe I shouldn't be broadcasting out there to all the uh, the hijackers and the the uh, the hackers. Anyway, uh, I've got to update my Joomla. He so he, te- he said to me, and I said, I beg your pardon. Update your Joomla. Uh, anyway, it has too many back doors. He said. And uh, recently there was a, um, a story going sort of viral on the Internet about cell phones. And if you received a, a call from some 877 number or something, it might be the NSA. Uh, and if they call you and you connect with that call, you've given them a back door into your cell phone. Gives a whole new meaning to uh, Jim Morrison and the doors. I'm your back door man. Uh, anyway, your D-Link router may be a back, may have a back door. That's posted on the internet, or on my website rather, richardserrett.com, along with 17 survival skills everyone should learn. Yes, folks, it's getting, uh, later than you think. Time to learn how to grow your own tomatoes, uh, raise and skin your own rabbits, and I guess, I don't know, learn how to make your own uh, candles. So that's up there as well. And, this one uh, I'll draw your attention to as well. What does the NSA know about the UFO cover-up? Wow. Well, we're going to delve into that a little bit, I think, tonight. And we're going to do so, ably abetted by my good friend, who joins me now in the studio, as he does from time to time, Victor Vigiani, Executive Director of Zealand News Network. How are you, Victor? <laughs> Just great. Just great. Thanks for having a this opportunity once again it always just staggers me to be able to come on and uh, discuss the the kinds of things we talk about and you, you sort of alluded to them this evening with all the backdoor stuff going on I mean, when people come in my back door i just ask them to leave but i can't do that anymore <laughs> you cannot you cannot and all of these uh, things that used to be dismissed as mere paranoia uh, even a year or two ago mm-hmm. now suddenly it's uh, very unsettling but it's it's sort of dawning on, on, on many of us that this is not mere paranoia, and even the, the mainstream media is slowly being dragged kicking and screaming into our sort of reality, mm-hmm. if you will. And uh, thus, this is uh, really the subject of uh, uh, Nick Redfern's new book, For Nobody's Eyes Only, Missing Government Files and Hidden Archives that Document the Truth Behind the Enduring Conspiracy 
theories. Always a pleasure to welcome Nick Redfern to the program. He's an author, a lecturer, a journalist specializing in a wide range of unsolved mysteries, including Bigfoot, UFOs, of course, the Loch Ness Monster, alien encounters, government, conspiracies, and uh, as I say, his latest book, For Nobody's Eyes Only, Nick Redfern. How are you, my friend? Hey, Richard. I'm doing good, thanks. How are things? Well, uh, you know, it's a good it's a good time to be in the conspiracy business, I guess, because uh, a lot of these things are simply, as I say, percolating into the mainstream media. I was telling Victor before the show, I heard one uh, opiner in the mainstream media saying not too long ago that maybe he owes us conspiracy nutters an apology because so many of the things that we talk about on this program and others are coming true. I want to start off with a definition. What do we mean by top-secret documents? What are the, let's say, the top three classifications of classified documents? Well, yeah, I mean, this is sort of a, an important area for people to be aware of. I guess often, you know, phrases get banded around like top-secret and ultra-top-secret and all sorts of things, you know, that um, people don't think about. They just accept, uh, you know, the, the definition that's given. But um, in reality, um, you know, depending on the relative nation, there are all sorts of different classifications, but they basically sort of range from top secret downwards, then you have secret, and depending again on the country, you have like restricted, um, things like that. And um, the, the situation in the United States, for example, you have top secret, secret, and confidential. And, and contrary to popular law that you sometimes hear, within conspiracy research circles, there is actually no classification above top secret. Um, you know, there's nothing, there literally is nothing above it. But what you do have are so-called special access programs where person A, person B, and person C may all have the same classification clearance, top secret. But this specific uh, special access program may have uh, like a specific code word or a name or terminology and unless you have that particular clearance, you don't get to access that program or even be aware that it exists. So that's what leads sometimes people to think, well, I have a top secret clearance, or this person did, but they didn't know anything about this project, so it must be of a higher clearance. I mean, technically, it isn't. It's just you need that key to access it. So that's an important thing to note when somebody comes forward and alleged whistleblower and says, you know, I worked on a program that was 15 levels above top secret. It's nonsense. There's no such thing. Ah, that's interesting. Have you ever seen a document stamped majestic? Um, well, I have, but I mean only within the UFO field, you know, in terms of so-called questionable documents that, you know, it's it's difficult to know their actual authenticity or not, you know. Right. I wanted to ask you also another term that we hear bandied about, and that is need to know. How is it arrived at? Who has a need to know? Does the president always have a need to know? Well, need to know essentially also ties in with the whole issue of special access programs and also smaller projects. You know, I mean, the way secrets are legitimately kept to preserve national security is that you don't tell everybody and his brother in one particular agency what everybody else in the agency is doing. You know, that's how secrets are, are kept. That's how national security and the defense of the nation is preserved. Uh, for example, you know, if you work for, hypothetically, uh, say Britain's MI5, which is the equivalent to the FBI, you know, you're not, if you get a job with MI5, you're not simply automatically told everything that MI5 does or what project it's working on at any given time. You know, you're told all that you need to know to do your particular job. And, you know, that, that's 
as I said, that's how secrets are, uh, work. And, and very often, you know, a project can be so deeply buried that when you talk about the president or, you know, people in Congress, they don't always know, um, you know, and perhaps it comes out further down the line or, or sometimes it doesn't. You know, a project may remain hidden for years or decades until the, the material's finally declassified. Nick Redfern is uh, with us here on The Conspiracy Show. His new book is For Nobody's Eyes Only, Missing Government Files and Hidden Archives that Document the Truth Behind the Most Enduring Conspiracy Theories. And uh, joining us uh, in studio, as he does from time to time, our good friend Victor Vigiani, Executive Director of Zealand News. We're coming up on a break in a few minutes, but I want to delve into the notion of sort of what's classified and what gets declassified. When did that process begin? I mean, was there a time when all documents were declassified after a certain amount of time? And if so, when did that change? Walk us through that that process of the declassified document versus classified documents. Sure. Well, most sort of advanced uh, nations today have what are called Freedom of Information Acts. And that's something that I use quite regularly. You know, I'm not somebody who recklessly leaks in i'm not you know in a position to do that but i mean i'm not somebody on the other hand other end who sort of accepts leaked material or anything like that you know i don't get involved in all this sort of edward snowden WikiLeaks stuff because that's just guaranteed to get you into big trouble you know what i try and do is approach what i do from the same perspective say a historian writing a book on the second world war you know i go to government archives and check out uh, official files that have been officially and legally declassified. You know, I, I don't get involved with anything uh, beyond that at all because, it's, as I said, it's just asking for trouble. Um, now, when you go to places like, you know, relevant archives of different agencies, those documents will have been uh, uh, released through the terms of the Freedom of Information Act of varying nations. Um, in the U.S., the Freedom of Information Act was initiated in the 1960s and essentially it allows members of the general public and the media to request access to files, um, which, you know, literally could date from last week if you were aware of the relevant file. And they have archivists and staff whose job it is to essentially go through the material and determine if it can be declassified in full, um, in part, or if it has to be completely withheld. Now, the, the files, um, ostensibly at least, should regardless of classification, start to surface after 25 years. But there are additional pieces of legislation that allow for continued withholding. For example, there are a number of files still relative to the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962 that are still classified, and some of the papers on the JFK assassination of 63, they still haven't finished being reviewed before they can become declassified. So, in other words, it's a bit of a grey area um, but prior to the Freedom of Information Act, you know, documents would, would still be declassified. It was just according to the relevant agency's, you know, own opinion as to when they could appear. But today we have this official legislation in place. I'm told when it comes to uh, sort of the, the UFO ET arena that there was this a window during the Carter administration when there was, between 1976 and, let's say, 79, this, this flood of information that was coming out. And then after Carter left office, that sort of window of opportunity for researchers to access a lot of those files 
was shut, perhaps indefinitely. I'll get your, your thoughts on that when we come back. Again, Nick Redfern, for nobody's eyes only, missing government files and hidden archives that document the truth behind the most enduring conspiracy theories. And that's what we talk about here on The Conspiracy Show. Back with more in a moment. Don't go away. Question everything. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. Nick Redfern stays with us. And uh, his new book is For Nobody's Eyes Only. Victor Vigiani in studio, executive director of Zealand News Network, and talking about U.S. documents, uh, secret files. A large portion of the book obviously dedicated to sort of the UFO arena. And I was asking you before the break, Nick, I guess for the UFO researchers, this was the golden era say, the Carter administration, 76 to 79, when there was this flood of government documents that were released, I guess at Carter's behest, relating to UFOs. And then that window closed suddenly with a change in administrations. Is that a fair assessment of what happened? Uh, well, I think it's more from, from my perspective. I can only sort of tell it as I see it, is that, you know, what happened was in 76, um, agencies like the FBI and the CIA started to release their files because... There was actually a change in the FOIA situation then, and it made it easier for members of the general public to use it. So a lot of UFO researchers um, uh, applied to get the files released, and the FBI's files were actually obtained by Dr. Bruce Maccabee, who was the first person to get them, and the FBI declassified to him just under 2,000 pages. And, you know, contrary to what a lot of people think, it's not, you know, just boring material. The, the material that Maccabee got, you know, it's packed with reports of... UFO encounters involving pilots and radar reports and UFOs hovering over military installations. It's really good stuff. And um, the FBI have now put those files on their their website, which is called The Vault. Um, and during the same time period, the CIA released about a 1,000 or so pages of theirs. And um, in the 1980s, the Defense Intelligence Agency released several hundred pages, which are on their website. Um, now, of course, you know, depending on who you ask, some people might say, well, that's just, you know, the, a small fraction. Uh, other people might say that's all they've got. But um, what I would say, you know, I point out in the book that one of the important things I stress is that I don't paint the government or the agencies as the bad guys at all, because I don't believe the really deep secrets about UFOs are hidden by specifically the FBI, the CIA, or, or whoever. I think it's more of some sort of shadow government group, if you like. So in other words, I don't point the, the... I think the files that the agencies have released, I think they've legitimately released what they've looked for and found. But, and I think the reason there's no problem with doing that is because they aren't the people who hide in what, you know, people are looking for, like the truth about Roswell. I think... I really do believe that's nothing to do with the government. I think it is like some shadow agency that is so incredibly well buried that everybody targets you know the agencies as the bad guys and i think it's the exact opposite i think you're right nick i think you know maybe going back all the way to, to 47 and truman mm. had that farmed out to private interests yeah. uh, let me work uh, victor vigiani in here who makes the actual decision as to what gets placed in what category and is it sort of a an element of governance these people that are elected uh, or is it military intelligence agencies or like this shadow government that you're alluding to also. Like, where does this all get decided? Do you mean the, the level of classification? Yeah. Well, I mean, a lot of it is sort of down to common sense. I mean, for example, you know, nobody would want documents ever to be released on something that would reveal 
things like the capability of our radar systems because you don't want hostile nations knowing how high we can track in the sky because then they'll, then they'll fly higher, you know, and spy on us that way. Mm-hmm. So that sort of stuff, number one, should not be declassified, and number two, things like that should be classified at highly sensitive levels, so, you know, probably at top secret. But something further down the line, um, you know, that is still has, can have an effect on national security but isn't critical would fall under secret and then something that was you know at the lowest level but still was something where you know it was a sensitive issue would fall under say the restricted banner but a lot of it is just sort of common sense you know the things you would expect to be classified top secret like launch codes on missile systems would obviously fall into that category um so you know and, and, and that's usually the way it works it's the you know the the related seriousness or potential seriousness dictates the classification level. Would there be people in these organizations that are beyond the government, do they have the capacity, legitimate or otherwise, to tell elected officials, no, you can't know that information? Um, well, I don't think it's what they say, no, you, you know, you can't know this data or, or have access to it. You know, I, I think generally what happens is that, you know, a, a prime minister or president's that they're, you know, they're not Superman. They have to be briefed and be given summary briefings on what's going on in all arms of government. And I think sometimes, you know, what happens is that they get a summary write-up or, or briefing on a particular thing, but it may not, you know, encompass the entire story. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, when the story comes out later on, then the relevant person says, well, why wasn't I told? You know, and so it's, it's kind of like a... 50-50 thing, you know, was the information withheld, or is it simply the fact that they they can only have a brief, you know, so many briefings, and a briefing has to be, by definition, brief, you know, to, to what extent they weren't told versus what could be told in the available time, you know, given everything else they're doing. Dr. Stephen Greer, a UFO disclosure advocate, tells the story of a chief of intelligence for the Joint Chiefs of Staff getting wind of a program I believe it was relating to some sort of back engineering of technology recovered from a, a UFO crash site. And I think that he caught wind of it through Dr. Greer. Uh, he tells a story that while Greer was sitting in his office, this intelligence officer, head of intelligence rather, for the Joint Chiefs of Staff, called the department or the agency uh, or whether it was some sort of R&D facility that was named in this program got someone on the phone, identified himself as the head of intelligence for the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and asked to be read into the program, I guess, which means, you know, give me the lowdown. And he was told, in no uncertain terms, you don't have a need to know, and was promptly hung up on. Does that happen? Well, I mean, I have no personal way to know that it does happen. I've personally not come across that at all. But, um, you know, I'm, but although it is a fact that if you aren't written into, like, a special access program, then you would not get access to it. So... What I meant was I'm not aware of it specifically, you know, in that case or directly with the UFO issue. But, um, you know, if you're working on a, on a program, let's say hypothetically, I don't know, tracking Russian submarines, if you're not part of that program and you ask about it, you know, you're going to have the door shut in your face because, again, it, it helps preserve national security, you know. My, my sense of the, you know, despite promises uh, that this, the, the Obama administration was going to be the most transparent uh, my sense is, right or wrong, uh, that never have so, has so much information been classified, uh, and never before has the U.S. federal government been so untransparent. Uh, it seems to me like, you know, everything is, uh, 
uh, you know, wit- the way you just look at the, witness the, the, the treatment of whistleblowers, the people that try to come forward and, re- and, and uh, reveal information about what various spy agencies are doing to the citizens and so forth. Uh, to me, this is just a very distressing time uh, in, in, in terms of, um, you know, access to information uh, and, uh, and who knows what about whom and who's being tracked and, and uh, who has access to public or private records and so forth. Very distressing. What, what are your thoughts on that, Nick? Well, I think, you know, one of the reasons why there's been such a a debate and why the media is so involved is simply because, you know, the people who are aware of it, in other words, you know, it's kind of, to what extent it might have been going on earlier, I don't know, but it wasn't talked about because people didn't know about it. You know, it's, it's kind of like when people say, is one government more transparent than another? Well, we ask that question because revelations come out that, beg the question or raise the question but you know it's the only re- you know we wouldn't be talking about it in other words if a whistleblower hadn't come forward um so who's to say it hadn't always been like that that's the point i'm trying to make you see what i mean maybe right. not, nothing's changed beyond what the media has found out is there any way of knowing uh, nick and so many documents have been released for a number of years about uh, any number of issues um, i'm most familiar with with most of the ufo stuff there obviously is other stuff out there the kinds of information that are in fact placed in the fbi vault for example or on the cia's uh, list of released documents is there any sense that some of this stuff uh, is just sort of thrown out as cannon fodder to kind of hide what's really kind of going on behind the scenes? Uh, in other words, is some of this disinformation? Personally, I don't think it is. I mean, you know, again, as I said, I don't paint the, the government or the government agencies as the bad guys in this. As I said, I think it's the shadow organizations. But, I mean, for example, if you go to the FBI's website, the vault, I mean, that's an excellent website. I, I mean, I actually only have good words for the FBI. You know, this website, they release thousands of pages on, for example... UFOs, um, Albert Einstein, um, the the gangster era, Cold War uh, attempts to find Russian spies, um, hundreds of files on Hollywood stars, you know, how they were watched in the 50s and why, um, things like the Cuban Missile Crisis, the Kennedy assassination, and, you know, they're all widely available in downloadable PDF form on the FBI site. And, um, you know, in that sense... The, the FBI, as far as I'm concerned, have done a great job in revealing, you know, the historical aspects of their work. And a lot of the documents, contrary to a lot of people think, they're not, you know, summarily blacked out or whatever. They tell a really interesting history. But, you know, as I said, I investigate conspiracies, but very often I don't see official agencies at fault, you know, and I don't see the FBI at fault with their UFO files. I think they released really what they had. I don't think they held hardly anything back at all. And, uh, and only the ones that were were the ones where there were legitimate um, issues, you know, that were covered by freedom of information. But the reason why I think they released them all, again, is because I don't believe the FBI is an agency that's, that's hiding the truth about UFOs. You know, they were, they were on the fringe of it all. You mentioned Hollywood starlets. There's a chapter in the book uh, relating to Marilyn Monroe. Yeah. The whole situation of what was going on at Marilyn Monroe's house and who was there and what time she died and, and of course, the disappearance of the infamous Red Diary that yeah. she supposedly kept. What can you tell us about FBI documents relating to 
what may have been in that red diary and, and what, sure. what were the contents of various telephone conversations? Because it seems like the FBI was very interested before she died in who was coming and going in that house that night. Yeah, well, the FBI has now declassified its file on Marilyn Monroe. It's been in the public domain for quite a few years. And it's and again, it's on the FBI's website, The Vault, where you can download the whole thing. And it covers the mid-1950s right through to the 70s, which was, you know, a decade or so after she died. But, um, you know, the file was kept open because people were asking about the case and new material was coming forward. Um, but the reason I mention this in the book is because the the FBI, some of the early FBI documents are actually shared with the director of the, C, of the CIA. And, and that's actually borne out on the documents. But the CIA, when they were approached for any documents on Marilyn Monroe, they said, well, we, we don't have anything at all. And then that's the official story. Um, but at the very least, they should have the files that the FBI sent them, which reflect that they were sent to the CIA. But those files can't be find, found either. And on top of that, as you said, this red diary, uh, so-called diary of secrets that Marilyn Monroe kept, supposedly containing a bunch of information that the Kennedy brothers, President uh, John F. Kennedy and his brother um, Bobby Bobby Kennedy, the Attorney General, um, had shared information with uh, with uh, Marilyn Monroe, and she'd written it all up in this diary. So, in, in essence, the diary became itself a national security issue, and. It actually vanished from the coroner's office um, just a few days after her death in August 1962. And we don't know where it went to this day. And, um, and we hear snippets now and again of stories involving the CIA in Marilyn, Marilyn Monroe's life and watching her because of her relationship with the Kennedys, etc. And there's even a highly controversial document um, which was provided in the mid-1990s to an author named Milo Spiriglio, who wrote three books on the death of Marilyn Monroe from the perspective of it being a murder rather than accident or suicide. And this is a document that talks about how a number of agencies were supposedly wiretapping Marilyn Monroe's house and her conversations, and that one of the stories that was picked up during the conversations was supposedly how President Kennedy had sort of bragged to her that he'd seen or he'd been taken to what was called a secret Air Force base to view things from space, which kind of makes, in some people's minds, it sort of led to the idea, you know, was it Area 51 and did he see bodies from Roswell? Yeah, what's interesting is the documents, although some people said it's a straightforward hoax, it actually doesn't reinforce the UFO issue because, contrary to a lot of people think, it doesn't mention UFOs, it doesn't mention aliens, doesn't mention alien spacecraft, doesn't mention Area 51. It just talks about the president being taken to a secret airbase to view bodies and craft from space. You know, and the, the actual project is titled Project Moondust, which was actually an official program designed to uh, recover Soviet spacecraft and, and space satellites. All so, right, I've got to jump in here, uh, Nick. We're taking a okay. time out. We'll come back and continue along. For Nobody's Eyes Only, Nick Redfern here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away.
The truth will set you free, but first, it'll really tick you off. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Nick Redfern is with us for Nobody's Eyes Only, Missing Government Files and Hidden Archives that document the truth behind the most enduring conspiracy theories. And uh, joining us in studio, Victor Vigiani from Zealand News Network. Uh, I want to ask you about a, a story that caused quite a stir in the UFO community a couple of years ago when a man purporting to be the ent- uh, entertainment liaison officer for the CIA uh, claimed that he had, uh, I guess, access to... Uh, something called the Historical Intelligence Collection. I believe that's the name of it. And when poking around in some drawers and uh, uh, saw some and files and saw uh, documents relating to uh, Roswell and, and other crashes, I believe. And um, after you know witnessing this, went public and declared that. Again, everything we've heard about Roswell is absolutely 100% true, and he was speaking as a member of the CIA. Mm. Uh, what can you tell us about Chase Brandon and that whole episode? Yeah, well, this, this is an interesting story from, from several different perspectives. Chase Brandon um, was essentially the CIA's en- entertainment liaison officer, which basically means he sort of represented the CIA, CIA's interest in Hollywood. You know, if the um, a production company wanted to make a film about the CIA, like, you know, some... Uh, conspiracy thriller or whatever, they would perhaps go to the um, entertainment liaison officer to get background information, if you know, to get an accurate portrayal, that kind of thing. But um, Brandon said that he read or saw in this uh, so-called historical intelligence collection a file that was titled Roswell. That was literally the only word that was on the file. And he really wouldn't talk about very much what the file actually contained beyond the fact that it's, you know, it referred to the incident and essentially, you know, went beyond the official story of balloons and crash test dummies, and etc. Um, the, the story has obviously provoked a great deal of interest, and it must be said in the, in the UFO community, a great deal of scepticism. I mean, for example, Kevin Randall, who's one of the sort of most fervent believers, um, you know, in the existence of not just a UFO phenomenon, but the probability that UFOs crashed at Roswell. He thinks the story's nonsense. His actual word was crapola. <laughs> so he described um, Chase Brandon's story. Now, it must be admitted that there is one glaring issue in Brandon's story. The file itself was reportedly an old file, and it was titled Roswell. But the connection between Roswell itself, the place, and the crash really only came out in 1980 when Charles Burlitz and Bill Moore wrote the book The Roswell Incident. A lot of people don't realize that the, the actual crash site where the event occurred was on a place called the Foster Ranch, in Lincoln County, New Mexico, which is actually about a two-hour drive from the town of Roswell. It's a long way away. I mean, I've been to the actual crash site, and I left Roswell, where I was staying, in a, in a motel there at, like, 9 in the morning, and got to the crash site at, like, 11.30. You know, that's how long it takes you to get out to that crash site. So, in other words, the only reason um, the event itself has become tied with Roswell, the town, is because... That was the nearest base where the wreckage could be taken to. The crash actually didn't occur anywhere near Roswell itself. So, in other words, for a file to be titled Roswell, for an old file, is kind of strange, you know, when the the actual connection itself as such hasn't been made that openly or that deeply. 
So, you know, that, that's one of the big issues. You know, you would imagine that if it was a really old file and it related to the crash, why not talk about, you know, why isn't it titled something like Incident on the Foster Ranch, Lincoln County? You know, Roswell isn't even in Lincoln County. Um, so that, that's one of the big issues as to why it would be titled Roswell, you know, when Excellent that terminology point. is actually relatively new. So. All right. Victor Vigil. Yeah, I just wanted to, to run something else by you. Um, Going back just before Roswell, and really doesn't have anything to do with, with the UFO issue at all, uh, but the first um, explosion of the uh, the atom bomb, um, we've got some stories that I've been investigating myself, that we had a press agent, as I know his last name was Moynihan, um, a press agent spoke up and wrote an article about the actual A-bomb explosion at, uh, at White Sands. And what he was told to write was that the explosion was nothing more than a munitions dump explosion, which caused absolutely no damage at all. Now, that's, you know, you're considering 40 million pounds of TNT exploding. And then just after that, Major General um, Leslie Groves, uh, high up in the whole Manhattan Project, is on record as saying that all of this talk is uh, of radiation is nothing but simply nonsense. And you get two kinds of statements made at that level, at that time in history. And it, it, I just begin to wonder, Nick, how can we trust anything that the government or the agency officials that are putting this information out, how can we trust them to, to tell anything that's even remotely well, similar to the truth? Well, I mean, I think there's one thing we need to bear in mind, you know, is that, that when those statements were made about the atomic bomb, you know, we're at war and fighting for our lives against the Germans and the Japanese. So, <clears throat> you know, I guess you can make the good argument that... You don't, we wouldn't have wanted the Japanese or the Germans to know we developed the atomic bomb, so we would do our best to hide that data, you know. I mean, I might sound like I'm coming across like an anti-conspiracy theorist, but, you know, I grew up in the UK where we regularly face terrorist threats from the Irish Republican Army, the IRA. And, you know, that, and security was in place then. You know, in the Second World War, Britain had the, you know, the whatever bombed out of it by the Germans. And a lot of rules and laws and secrecy was put into place because Britain could have gone under, you know. And I think, for, I mean, I may be wrong, but for me, you know, I don't see anything wrong with telling people an atomic bomb wasn't tested because when we're at the height of war fighting someone that would want to develop it, you know, we'd want to keep them away so you would play it down. But. You know, that, that's, that's just my opinion. Mm-hmm. All right, we're uh, heading into a break, Nick. On the other side, I want to talk about, I mean, it's one thing for the government to release documents that they have, and then there are incidents where documents and files simply go yeah. missing, which is rather convenient. And uh, you, uh, of course, mentioned being from Britain. We'll talk about a, fair, a fairly famous UFO incident there. Uh, some say is only rivaled by Roswell, and that would be your Roswell, the Rendlesham UFO incident. We'll get into that and what happened to those documents. When the Conspiracy Show returns after this, stay with us. When in doubt, blame the government. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Uh, Nick Redfern stays with us uh, for a few moments yet, the author of For Nobody's Eyes Only, Victor Vigiani uh, from Zealand News Network in studio. Uh, I have to ask you about Rendlesham Forest, uh, uh, Nick. And, you know, I, I was in Rendlesham. Uh, I walked around, um, you know, Eastgate with, uh, with Larry Warren and um, uh, I talked with um, uh, Jim Penniston uh, down in Phoenix about what, what, what went on in, uh, in Rendlesham back in, uh, over Christmas break in 1980. 
uh, it seemed like there were a lot of people with cameras over the course of those two or three nights. Apparently, there was a lot of film footage taken, and, of course, nothing has surfaced. Uh, what can you tell us about, um, you know, the likelihood that um, somebody disappeared, uh, some some pretty compelling evidence? Well, yeah, there's actually a lot of evidence, uh, ironically, to suggest that evidence has gone missing in the in the Rendlesham case. Um, you know, this is, for people who aren't aware, it's the case of this landing or series of landings and encounters in Rendlesham Forest adjacent to two military bases, Bentwaters and Woodbridge. Um, one had a U.S. contingent, the other a British contingent. And um, the reports of, like, a triangular-shaped UFO in the woods and lights beamed to the ground and small beings seen. Well, you would imagine with something like this, a tremendous amount of documentation would have been put together. But really, other than a few documents that talk about the case and the famous report, one-page report put together by the deputy base commander, Charles Holtz, that outlined the, the affair... Everything was sent reportedly to the British Ministry of Defence, who basically said, well, we don't think national security was compromised and essentially forgot about it. But when we look into it, we actually find evidence of material that is missing that shouldn't be, or it should be somewhere. For example, in uh, one of the things I talk about in the book is a little-known story about how in 1988 a British um, prison officer named George Wilde spoke to Graham Birdsall, who at the time was the editor of the, Britain, the British UFO magazine. And George Wilde told um, Graham Birdsall on the record that he was aware that on the nights of the Rendlesham Encounters, which was like the 26th to the 28th of December, that the British government's home office, which handles security matters relative to crime and things like this, um, had actually uh, planned or had standing plans in place to evacuate three prisons in the area, one of them being High Point Prison and the two other ones not too far away from Rendlesham Forest. And supposedly they were going to be evacuated for reasons affecting national security. And the inference was it was somehow related to the UFO landings. And on top of that, um, there's also a story which was investigated and uncovered by Georgina Bruni, who wrote a, a, a book herself on Rendlesham called You Can't Tell the People. And... She uncovered a story about how supposedly a team of personnel in hazmat suits travelled out to the forest the following day after the first after the first event and supposedly came from Porton Down. Porton Down is the British government's installation in the south of England that handles research into things like exotic viruses and biological warfare. And they supposedly went out there and retrieved something from the forest. And questions were asked about this um missing data on Porton Down and also on the, um, the prison records by a man named Lord Hill Norton, who was a former uh, defence chief in Britain who had a personal interest in UFOs. And when he asked questions about this mis- uh, the, the journal, I should say, he asked to see the, the prison office, the prison governor's journal, you know, that would cover the time of the Rendlesham events to see if it confirmed, you know, the prison evacuation was planned for. Well, the government grudgingly agreed to check the old archives for December 1980 and only to find that the um, logbook for December 1980 is gone, you know, which is sort of very, very suspicious. The one logbook that potentially could uh, throw light on the events and whether this evacuation did occur or was planned, I should say, 
uh, conveniently had gone missing. And that's something we see time and again in UFO cases. Yeah, I was wondering, too, about that, because a lot of times when you get that kind of material evidence, uh, be it you know, cameras that, uh, mm-hmm. or that, uh, that Richard alluded to earlier, um, what I like to, to term all of that, too, that's in terms of you know, missing evidence and documents and witness testimony, I look at those kinds of things as converging lines of evidence. Uh, each one of those things is probably important on its own, in its own right, the, the, the tape, the audio tape, for example, and some of the documents. But when you put them together and when you sort of draw these converging lines of evidence, um, even with missing documents, it's quite clear that those converging lines of evidence point pretty clearly to something, um, you know, <laughs> almost, uh, you know, <laughs> bad happening and, and with the way the release of the information is going and anybody who looks at that kind of um, those, those lines of evidence has to come to the conclusion that something's up here and there's, there's a story not being told and I guess how do we fill those gaps in I guess is my question mm. well that's a, that's a good question I mean it's almost as if the agencies themselves don't know and I'll explain what I mean by that mm-hmm. um, a few years ago um, some more documents surfaced internal documents surfaced on Rendlesham not so much about the case but they're actually from the British government's defence intelligence staff where people within the DIS were speaking to each other saying, hey, you know, we've been getting freedom of information requests for this uh, this Rendleton Forest event and we've gone looking and they actually said in the internal documents, which are actually never intended for public release, they, you know, they service through the Freedom of Information Act, they actually said that we've gone looking and we found a huge gap where there should be material. And one of the guys speculated to another. It seemed as if somebody was trying to bury the case. So even within the agencies, you know, there are people who don't know. And But the important thing is, it's this sort of lack of evidence, but also sort of proof of lack of evidence that, for me, that, that's sort of the thrust of the book. It's mm-hmm. not so much based on what we know, but it's where we're seeing glaring, um, just material just missing, you know. I mean, a classic example as well is with uh, Roswell. A lot of people don't realize that all of the outgoing, every single outgoing uh, message from the Roswell Army Airfield from 1945 to 1949 cannot be accounted for. Every single message from that base outgoing has vanished. Uh, And that's not rumor or hearsay, that's official record. And it surfaced when the old government accounting office, which is today called the... um, uh, excuse me, the old General Accounting Office today mm-hmm. called the Government Accountability Office. They went looking into the issue of um, Roswell in, in 1993 to try and determine what happened back in '47, and no agency could find any records on Roswell in its files. Um, but again, it was what they didn't find, was that all these 1945 to 49 messages, and no explanation was given or could be found as to what had happened to the files. Were they shredded? Were they burned? Were they sent to another agency? We don't know, other than the fact that for all intents and purposes, they're gone. And, you know, this is very, this eerily parallels the situation with Roswell in Britain, you know, where the, where the files are all pretty much gone on that case as well. So this is what leads me to believe it's not so much the agencies themselves, it's almost like some super powerful shadow group moves in and they're the ones that are sitting on it all mm-hmm. you know otherwise you wouldn't have like these agencies saying to themselves where the hell are these files you know even they don't know where they are so. uh, nick we've talked a lot about uh, the ufo arena here and, and um the you know the book isn't just about government documents relating to ufos and i, I want to ask you about 
um, something relating to uh, MK Ultra because mm-hmm. a couple of weeks ago I had Roseanne Barr uh, on the program talking about um, MK Ultra and how it rules Hollywood and this is something she's been talking about for decades and uh, uh, you know people can sort of take that information and do with it what they will uh, but you do talk about uh, MK Ultra uh, in the book. And I just want to crib here from from uh, a chapter and just read this. Um, Within the annals of uh, annals of research into conspiracy theories, there is perhaps no more emotive term than that of mind control. Certainly, mention those words to anyone who is even remotely aware of them, and they will invariably and inevitably, and maybe justifiably, provoke imagery and comments pertaining to political assassinations and dark and disturbing official chicanery. The specter of mind control is one that has firmly worked its ominous way into numerous facets of modern society, and it has been doing so for years. Consider, for example, the following. This is then you uh, have a quote here from uh, George, Dr. George Estabrooks, who was the chairman of the Department of Psychology at Colgate University back in the 40s, and he said, "This is a very well-known quote: I can hypnotize a man without his knowledge or consent into committing treason against the United States." He went on to say 200 trained foreign operators working in the United States could develop a uniquely dangerous army of hypnotically controlled sixth columnists. Uh, what can you tell me about documents pertaining to sort of the scope of MKUltra? Well, yeah, I mean, MKUltra was certainly the most well-known and famous of all the various sort of so-called mind control or mind manipulation projects over the decades. Um, but in reality, I mean, there were dozens that started in sort of the immediate post-war, Second World War era. Um, and some of them were cancelled, some of them continued. And MKUltra was certainly, you know, the biggest and um, the sort of umbrella organization that had various sub-projects underneath it. And again, through the Freedom of Information Act, we actually have th- tens of thousands of pages on MKUltra, which have shed a lot of light on how you know, various drugs and um, hypnotic techniques were used to see how the mind could be manipulated. But we would have had an even bigger stack of documents. But uh, as I point out in the book, um, back in the early 1970s, um, uh, uh, literally, I mean, a massive amount, literally hundreds of thousands of pages was destroyed um, based on the orders of Richard Helms, who was the director of the CIA at the time. There was concern that somebody on the inside was leaking uh, documents on MKUltra and, and information. And actually, it did reach the New York Times. They were the first one to break the story um, of the existence of MKUltra and its scope. And um, because there was concern that somebody was leaking it, a decision was taken essentially to destroy as much of the material as possible. And that might sound strange, but the reason why the documents were destroyed was because the programs essentially... Um, the research behind them had been completed. In other words, they were up and running. So all the historical material was perceived as being not necessarily valid or, or needed anymore, you know, when everything was up and running. So literally, um, as I said, thousands upon thousands of pages were ordered by Richard Helms to be uh, burned or shredded, you know, and obliterated. And, of course, we'll never really know what was in that material. That's just literally been lost to the to history forever but again it demonstrates why sometimes files you know do get destroyed um outside of you know official protocol in this case it was because helms felt that somebody on the inside was releasing and leaking data so he felt the best thing to do was to prevent the leakage was to just destroy it all so in other words you have different ideas and reasons why files sometimes vanish you know sometimes they get hidden sometimes they get destroyed because somebody's fearful 
somebody else who's going to leak them, you know. Uh, and and sometimes, I mean, let's be let's be honest. Sometimes, perhaps, they go conveniently, they go missing because somebody's covering somebody's, you know, posterior. Well, that's right. I mean, you don't. We, you know, we can always look at it from different ways and um, or different perspectives on the on the case or the incident in question. You know, I think with Roswell or Rendlesham, it's clearly been done. You know, to because maybe there are well, not maybe, but there are people somewhere that don't want this material releasing and they don't want us to know what happened at Rendlesham or at Roswell. Um, in terms of the CI and the MK Ultra thing, it was literally one man's decision. I mean, literally, Richard Helms, he took the decision to, hey, you know, we're going to destroy this before any more gets leaked. So I think a lot of it depends on circumstances, situations, and, you know, the, the scope of the project and, and things like this. And, um, you know, each case is kind of, you know, on its own merit, I guess. Nick Redfern, uh, for nobody's eyes only, missing government files and hidden archives that document the truth behind the most enduring conspiracy theories. And, of course, we just uh, skimmed the surface here. Congratulations on the book. Thanks for your time tonight, Nick. All right. Thanks, Richard. Good night. All right. Good night. And uh, Victor Vigiani, thank you as always. It's been a pleasure. Great to be here. All right. The website, richardserrett.com, your portal to The Conspiracy Show. Say hello on Twitter at Richard Serrett. And as always, follow the truth. <laughs>